You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. Greetings to Seattle, Washington. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Hey, Glenn. Uh, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you, too, sir. How did everything go for you? Uh, did, was, is there snow on the ground? Did you have to walk through drifts of um, snowbanks for trick-or-treating? No, we had snow a few days ago, and it melted. <laughs> so Okay. No, um... It was it was actually a very very it was it was cool it was very chilly but it was uh, it was a nice night uh, took the kids out trick treating um, they had a blast we had you know we always spend a lot of time working on our costumes and uh, I put together some costumes for the kids this year um, my youngest wanted to go as the, it's very specific and only if you know this it's a it's a kids horror game they actually make horror games for for kids <laughs> and uh it's uh it's a character from a uh, called um five nights at freddy's yes and it's oh you know it okay well, my, well, my, he, well kind of my kids know all about it okay well uh he went uh, as uh freddy fosbear and i made the mask and everything and it was fairly detailed and my Elder son went as uh, a character from uh, Terraria, another video game, uh, The Eye of Cthulhu. <laughs> so, oh, nice. It was They're a big start- floating eyeball. <laughs> starting the kids off young with Lovecraft these days. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, uh, the, the kids are into the Lovecraft. Um, and then I went as Dr. Clayton Forrester from Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> That's amazing. I'll, uh, I'll send some pictures your way. All right. And you? Uh, the, no, it reminds me of a few years back. Um, my oldest went as a, a zombie from the game Plants vs. Zombies, specifically oh, the specific zombie with the like the orange um, cone, like a oh the dunce cap thing. Yeah, the dunce cap looking orange cone on his head. Uh, so we got all the parts, and then I did all the makeup for that. And um, I think the next year he went as like one of the main blockhead guys from uh uh from minecraft so yep. uh, we found a, a steve. box to decorate yeah steve from minecraft so yeah we we did minecraft last year oh, okay uh this year actually was was a very different halloween for us it was the first year in i don't know how long where i didn't have to do any makeup my my oldest decides that now he's in high school so he wanted to stay home and hand out candy instead of um trick-or-treating with uh, the rest of the kids and one of my right. daughters got invited to go trick-or-treating with a friend in her neighborhood. And then, uh, so it was just just two of the kids left, and they both had uh, masks instead of makeup. So, um, very different Halloween. Usually it's all afternoon. <laughs> uh, I spend, you know, all right, who's up next? All right, you want right. to be... Uh, and the girls are usually zombie and then, you know, something else. So it's zombie cheerleader or zombie princess or zombie this or zombie that anyway a little different this year but uh, still really cool and and uh the kids all got quite a a haul of candy ah, that's cool yeah it, it's it is my favorite time of year i just i love this time of year oh yeah absolutely 
All right, well, a quick uh, email. Um, thanks to uh, Lisa Steele for writing in again. Uh, she commented on a couple things. Um, first was the, the Dandridge case that we talked about a little bit ago out of Alabama. And, uh, you know, as an attorney, uh, she kind of echoed that frustration of how, you know, someone who may be innocent kind of screwed over on just little procedural issues um, and, uh, you know, not wanting to go back and revisit things even when witnesses recant. Uh, yeah, I, I I think we in the previous episode we had talked about how it it must be frustrating from the attorney's standpoint oh, yeah. that now I mean even even when it appears that some of the evidence presented you know may have been misleading or incorrect or something like that it's still there are all these legal procedures that now come into play that can take a very very long time and then just a, a number of other factors that just being innocent of the crime is not necessarily enough or you know or not have you know or having had a bad case was not enough now you have to go through a number of hoops to make this happen and we I, we we talked about how that must be frustrating from an appellate attorney's level and asked Lisa if she was listening to write in so it sounds like she did yeah yep and she also made a comment about uh from before we talked about the article from Oh, it was on bias. I can't, I can't remember the author's <laughs> offhand. Oh, uh, the Edmund, the Australian Edmund yes. Tangent. Yeah, Thompson. that's the one. Yep. And um, her her comment was, uh, you know, she can understand, you know, um, the ex- fingerprint examiner being presented with this, the name of the suspect, uh, but uh, maybe uh, you know, a step too far would be this is the suspect because the eyewitness says so, or he confessed, or we got his DNA on this. Um, mm-hmm. so that's a fair point. I think that's, I, 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 you know, I agree. I think that's a fair point. So, um, you know, I, I, uh, <laughs> I always commend you know, attorneys for finding that, that middle ground. They seem to always be one way or the other, but, uh, um, you're not saying, Oh no, no just, you know, seeing that it's a, a suspect from the officer is, is biasing, but having that, that difference uh, specified. I think that's a, again a fair point, and yeah. um, and she kind of concludes by saying how how you know this might be enhanced when the examiner knows it's a high profile case, like uh, like the Mayfield error, because it seems like the examiners in that case knew that uh, it was it was this big bombing and it was a high profile case, and that kind of relates to what we'll talk about later on in the episode. Very true. Very true indeed. Well, that that letter does actually uh, set up a, a couple of things uh, that we're going to talk about for the rest of the episode. And the first was the the Dandridge case and an email related to that. So, you know, um, often we we try to read emails and discuss input from listeners. And uh, in this episode, I'm going to start off with something that's a little different for us. But we had an email, or I should say, I had an email uh, from a listener, and. Uh, we're keep the identities anonymous here and the 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 author of the the email asked that as well and um the the email was directed toward you know towards me specifically and the the individual had listened to the episode and had some 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 comments for me and uh after reading the email and then going back and listening to the episode uh, i took the comments to heart so one of the comments was that I um I had gone a little too far in something that I had said, and I had said something that could not only be offensive, but w- frankly, after listening to the episode 
and after um, you know reading the email, essentially what I said was a little thoughtless and careless, and it had to do with the examiners uh, in that episode. I had made a comment somewhere towards the end about uh, the you know examiners from Alabama um, a- ABI Bureau of Investigation. You know, I've never seen them in, my, in any of my classes, in any of my workshops. I've never talked to any of them at the conferences or seen any of them at the conferences and so on. And while that may be true, uh, the, the implication there was that, you know, those examiners are incompetent because of that or are certainly not competent or, or something along those lines. And that was uncalled for, for sure. And I definitely apologize because that was not the intention. In fact, that shot was really leveled more at the institution itself and more at management in the agency and how, you know, this case has been handled, you know, and then I guess some other personal things that I may know about, you know, just some cases and things going on down that way. I'll just leave it at that. And um, so it really was not meant to be a slight towards those examiners. And, uh, you know, I, I do apologize. And Eric, I had, I had actually asked you if you could even remove that statement from the uh, from the episode. And um, I, I think you said you're going to be able to do that or maybe you did or. Yeah, that's on that's on the uh, the uh, the schedule of, of tasks for this week. So when I OK, when I edit Fantastic. this one together, I'll, I'll go ahead and do that for that episode as well. Well, anyway, so I just wanted to apologize to any listeners and just, you know, I, I, I'm, I can own up to it and go, yeah, that was definitely thoughtless and, and uh, careless. And, you know, we, you and I, we do this unscripted late at <laughs> night. We don't have a production crew. We don't have, you know, fact checkers and things like that. And we, we opine and we editorialize and we say things off the cuff and we try to, you know, be entertaining, but also try to give you know, accurate information. And, you know, it was definitely not my intention to offend anyone. So if anyone listening thought Ooh, that was a bit harsh, I, I apologize. And we uh, were working to rectify that. So um, my apologies and my apologies to those examiners as well. Okay, um, moving on. Yes. So this, the second thing that that leads into is the Mayfield case. And for the next couple of episodes, we're going to revisit the Mayfield case. And this comes at a certain time too, in the in, in the in the long, in the long line of uh, either incorrect or stupid things or uh, just boneheaded things that Glenn Langenberg has said before, and I'm I'm fine with that. I've said some things that have been wrong, and I've said some things that um, you know I come come have come to regret later. I, everybody does, but when you're doing a lot of public speaking, you're going to say some of those things in public. And it turns out that over the years, I've been teaching some things wrong about the Mayfield case because the Mayfield case is a, you know, we cover it in the advanced ASB class that I teach. And, you know, it comes up often enough. And some of the quote unquote facts of the case that I've always taught turns out that they are incorrect. And I recently had the opportunity to go back and read the Office of the Inspector General report. From here on, we'll call it the OIG report the whole thing. And when the Mayfield case came out and when that event happened, there was a an executive summary that came out fairly quickly and it was basically just a summary of that and I read that, you know, from cover to finish, it's much shorter. So when the full OIG report came out, I think I had only skimmed it and and maybe looked at a few things. I'd never gone and read the entire thing. 
and it is full of fascinating details about the Mayfield case, including many of which I had either learned wrong, misremembered, been told by someone else who was close to the case, which I'll talk about in a little bit, um, or just in general, those early days of the Mayfield case when it was breaking and everyone was getting information, there was misinformation in there, as, as these things may happen. I mean, whether or not you're reading media, uh, newspaper articles, uh, you know, court documents, etc., you know, which was actually one of the email listeners' comments that some of the the information that we may have had about the Dandridge case going off of the court documents weren't necessarily correct either. But you know, you you, you trust your you you pick your certain sources and you right. tend to trust them. And court documents seem to be fair game. And some of that again in the early days in the Mayfield case, you know, people had a mishmash of information. So I I'm going to look at the OIG report, the full report, as the ground truth, whether or not that's correct or not, and whether or not people involved in the Mayfield case have a different opinion about that. I'm sorry, I'm going to go off of that as what really happened. And if any of the people involved in the case are listening and they have a different viewpoint or want to correct something, you feel free to write us and then we'll we'll talk about that. Absolutely. Otherwise, from here on in, we're going to use the OIG report as what happened in the Mayfield case. So most listeners, I would imagine, yourself included, Eric, know about the Mayfield case, but some of the details maybe have never really been explored or probably weren't explored during training. And um, although, again, everyone knows the the punchline, yes, the FBI made what apparently is their first and only known released erroneous identification, which was not only made by the first examiner, but verified by two others in-house, and then it went out. Um, uh, the Spanish police did not agree with, with the conclusion, and ultimately Mayfield here in the United States was arrested. He hires his own defense expert uh, who examines the prints, only has a couple of days before they're going to a hearing, and ends up agreeing with the FBI. And Eventually, the Spanish police identify another individual in Spain, you know, um, who was living in Spain and a known Al Qaeda terrorist. And then eventually, the FBI agrees with the Spanish police and says, "Yes, that is the actual source of the of a print from the Mayfield or from the Madrid train bombing case." I mean, those are the details that pretty much everybody knows. But right. what we're going to drill down today in in the next episodes or look at the facts behind it, the timeline, and then we'll get into what the OIG report and what the investigation attributed to actually what caused the error, and then we'll look at what they said did not cause the error, but has come up several times. So that's that's the game plan. All right, sounds good. I, it, it's really interesting, and I think I was in the same boat, kind of using the executive summary as, as a jump-off point, uh, but to, to use this as a a section in the training that we give uh, attorneys uh, in in the Phoenix area on latent prints in general, but the classes on, on all types of forensics. That's kind of a, an interesting part for them. You know, after we go through kind of the uh, the you know g- generalities of latent prints and latent print comparisons, then we kind of get into this particular case. And, and kind of like you said, I've always kind of used the executive summary as the the baseline for that. So. Uh, well, let's uh, let's see, uh, kind of, if I'm missing anything, or if I need to go back and change that presentation for next time we do it. 
Well, the, the executive summary is, is all accurate. I mean, it, it lays it out there. It just ex- is exactly that. It only hits the high points. Right. It's the OIG report that drills down and go, oh, okay. So that's what happened. Or that's actually, that now makes sense. It explains that. So, I mean, every, everything in the summary is correct. Right. It just doesn't have the fine details, some of which are what I've been teaching in class or talking about in class. So, again, there are any listeners who were students of the HB class i'm telling you i taught you something wrong but it i and I'll, I'll point out and they're they're very minor things but they mean a lot to me because it's important to me when teaching to have accurate information right. but i thought i was going off of again i mean people who are very close to the source or involved in the case or a little and you know I'll, I'll explain in a little bit all right all right so here we go. And I'll we'll stop and go back and forth a few times. And Eric, um, let, let's start with this. Uh, why don't you tell everybody where you were when the Mayfield – or sorry, <laughs> when the Madrid train bombing occurred on March 11th, 2004. That's when it happened. The, early in the morning, there was a bomb on a commuter train, uh, you know, morning rush hour that is detonated, kills 198 people and wounds – I mean, hundreds, upwards of a thousand, some more people. Uh, it's it's a devastating attack uh, in Madrid. Where were you on March eleventh, two thousand four? How? What comparisons I, were you doing that day? Well, I know actually know exactly where I was on March eleventh, two thousand four. I was in Alberta. <laughs> I was in uh, Red Deer, Alberta, Canada, uh, because um, that's where I had been sent by the company I worked for to. Uh, work for a chemical company uh, and their water purification system because I had yet to be involved in this latent print discipline and was instead busy uh, fighting the, uh, the the heavy winds out on the uh, you know the plains of Alberta hooking up pipes and acid, you know hydrochloric acid injectors and and all sorts of things not related to forensics at all so uh, <laughs> Yeah, this this is kind of funny coming from a different perspective because for me, you know, the the Mayfield case was something I learned about in training. It already kind of all gone past, and and everything was on the the other side of that uh, of that whole issue. A lot of the things I heard from you know trainers was, man, those look what the FBI did to us. You know, we had such a great thing going, and they had to make this big huge mistake that was you know splashed across headlines and interesting okay well it's it's very i'm going to share my my experience yeah so i remember you know when the train bombing happened and then you know soon afterwards we were actually giving a tour at the at the lab i worked in you know state of minnesota and the group coming through there was a professor at a local university and she said hey did you hear about um the you know the the Madrid train bombing case you know the FBI had someone in mind and then you know you know she um you know she had said that, you know and it sounds like you know they they got someone they arrested and I said oh well that 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 that's great and um for me I had um I had it was, I think it was my second swig fast meeting so. Like when she had when she had said that I hadn't read the paper that day, uh, but I knew I was just about to go to Swigfast for for the second meeting, and I think somewhere in there, I I believe what happened was 
you know, she had said that they had arrested someone, but then very quickly um, said that there might, you know, the papers were saying that there might have been a mistake. And I hadn't heard that part of it yet. And I said, well, you know, that doesn't really sound right because, you know, the only way that would have happened if there was maybe like an erroneous identification. And, you know, this professor said, yeah, I think that's what the paper was saying. And I, and I thought to myself, nah, I'm going to Swig Fast in a couple of days. I'll, I'll, I'll hear about this. And sure enough, when I go to Swig Fast, you know, this really hadn't all come out yet. And the images hadn't really gotten out there yet. And so we, you know, as Swigfast members, we got to hear about it very early on. And this was right right before the images were just starting to get out there um, and, and details were starting to, to emerge. And as we go through the timeline, I'll, I'll insert when this was because it's kind of interesting. But, you know, we, we basically got an update from some members of the FBI and they talked about the case very frankly and said, well, you know, these details here you know you're going to hear about these anyway we can't there's a lot we can't say there's going to be an ongoing investigation and we you know we took that to heart but you know we got to learn about some some of the very important details of the case early on but one of the things i walked away from that was i you know had had a set of the images and i was able to share them with people in my agency but they didn't know they were the mayfield images they really didn't know anything about the case yet because it really hadn't become you know, widespread knowledge yet. And so I shared them with uh, particularly two or three of my colleagues and one who, you know, one one examiner that people know I talk about a lot, a uh, friend of mine, Josh Bergeron, and I gave him the images and asked him, you know, his thoughts on it. And right away he came back and said, well, these aren't from the same source. And I said, well, let's talk about this a little bit. And then we started talking, you know, I was asking, well, what about if there was a triple tap uh, in the images and you can, you know, you can, you know, make this area fit and make this area fit? Because that was one of the explanations for the error happening right. is that the examiners had seen a triple tap, that it was essentially broken into three different parts. And that that explained the, the discontinuity of the ridges, the... Um, the, the the differing ridge counts and so on to certain regions and he adamantly said no this is one impression i said yeah but how do you know that i mean couldn't you make a, a break here in the bag and here you know this is from a plastic bag doesn't it break there and there and he said no 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 the ridges definitely go st straight through and he kept coming back to that which is a very fair point if you're willing to accept that it's three separate impressions then you can maybe begin to account for some of the you know the, the big differences. But if you treat it as a single impression and the ridges is continuous, then it's a very easy exclusion, which for him it was. Again, he was probably one of the few people who have seen those images and knew nothing about the case, did not know the origins of those images, and very quickly reached you know an, exclu an exclusion decision. But it was based on his very sure opinion this is a single latent print, not three separate portions. That that'll come up later in the episode too when we get to or maybe the next episode when we talk about some of the attributions for the, the error. Right. Okay. So um yeah that was so my early exposure uh to this came from Swigfast and you know hearing it right from members of the FBI and you know various folks who were involved in some way or another. So let's uh, let's let's talk about the timeline. 
so the the bombing happens on March 11th. I think that's a, a it's a Thursday, and so by the time they process the scene and start getting some latent print images recovered from various things at the scene, including a bag in a vehicle, and the bag had some undetonated um, explosives in it, and the some, the some detonators, right? Detonators, right? Yes, right. The de- detonators, and um, they uh, fume the bag develop some prints on the bag, and send those prints and other images off uh, through Interpol, the Spanish National Police. And so they hit, uh, for us in the United States, uh, Interpol would go through the FBI. So they go to the FBI. This is now on the weekend. And um, here's a detail I was unaware of, that some of the examiners in this case had come in on the weekend to actually work the case because they knew that they were receiving these images. It was a high-profile case, but they were coming in, I think it was on a Sunday, to actually run the images. So they were actually coming in off-duty to to run it because it was a high-profile case. And that that was a, a little detail that I was unaware of. And the individual coming in didn't have to, but did because knew that this you know needed some resolution was literally yeah sure i'll come in i can help out with that let's let's bang that out let's let's get that done you know and so that the choice to come in got that individual involved in the case so um you know they are they're run through iafis the images are run through iafis on march uh, 15th and they're you know they're searching and then i think on march 16th you know they're going through the lists and all that and eventually one of the latent prints lp uh seven i think it was i think it's deemed seven um that one is identified to brandon mayfield who's the number four candidate he was not the top candidate i think a lot of people know that little detail but he was the number four candidate and um it takes a little bit of time before it has to go through a verification process. Now, the the one of the, the supervisors who's involved had seen the image, you know, seen the comparison, and the the report talks a little bit about the interaction between the examiner at the APHIS terminal, the supervisor, you know, like, hey, take a look at this. Oh yeah, you know, it looks it looks like you're onto something there. But he doesn't, you know, it's almost like he's suggesting to him, yeah, you might have something there, but he's not committing to anything at that point. It's that very informal thing that happens which I'm very much against because of cases like this and other erroneous IDs I know <laughs> right. of, where you are at an APHIS terminal spending a lot of time looking at an image and someone comes by, takes a look at something, and then within you know a fraction of the time goes, mm, yeah, I see what you're looking at. I'm not, I'm not saying that's exactly what happened in this case, but I know of other erroneous ID cases where that's exactly what happened. And that little cue makes sometimes i think the examiner at the terminal go well you know it looks like we might have something here and that might be the tipping point for them to call it and then of course what usually happens is then it goes right back to that person for verification and if that person at that point says oh no this is you know this is an error i I've, i know of agencies where this has happened and the the examiners get very upset at one another because the initial person said well you said you'd call it or you i would call that and the person you know who 
was on the other end goes, no, 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 I didn't say that. You know, I was just, uh, it, it was just informal. It, it wasn't anything serious. I didn't, I wasn't doing a real examination. And there starts to get some heart, hurt feelings in there. Or even worse when the person does say, oh, yeah, I would definitely call that. And then it goes to, for verification right. to another person, comes up as an error, and then that person then denies ever having said that. I've heard that version of the story too. But it's this... um. It's this cavalier attitude of looking at it as just over the person's shoulder and you haven't spent as much time. It can be There can be that tiny little cue of, of a tipping point towards the ID. And it, it kind of sounds like that may have happened a, a bit in this case. Okay. Uh, so th- then this is all just the, early the next week. Um, right. Uh, well, I, yeah, I, I think the actual identification happens on monday or tuesday but they end up getting an actual person to verify it so they get a verifier that's the contract worker in it and then and then the case goes to the supervisor who had already seen it before on on screen and at that point now it's coming to, to that person and and he even you know during interviews said look i didn't spend as much time as i should have i saw who had already signed off on it i'd already you know seen the images earlier right and at that point i just you know i i didn't spend as much time as i needed to with it no. i didn't do a proper proper exam and you can see how those little tiny cues leading up to it yeah i I, I I completely understand, and I completely get you know. I, I mentally I can understand what happened in that case. Now, now you had said a contract worker is is um, is this from a unit that's working solely with you know APHIS uh, searches, APHIS cases, or is this you know oh, generally yeah. out there you know a, a more general latent print examiner? You know, I don't know enough about the FBI's workflow at that time okay. uh, to know what that meant. I know that they would sometimes hire contract workers to come back and help with backlog or verifications or APHIS or you know things like that. But they're always ex-FBI. So the contract worker was ex-FBI as well. Okay. And and both the first and the verifier had years of experience, you know, in, involved in this. And as did the supervisor. All three together had quite a few years of experience. Right. Okay. Um, so, th- you know, the report also talks about, and, and you know, I would recommend people going and, and reading about it, that, you know, that along the way, little questions came up about, um, like, for example, the verifier um, didn't quite just sign off on it right away. In fact, the verifier asked for additional exemplars. And the, the initial hit came out of IAFIS, which we'll talk about in a moment, and how and why. But the the verifier asked for additional exemplars, so at that point a military record is pulled. Mayfield actually had two exemplars, one in IAFIS and then a military record. But so I it, thought his was, IAFIS record came from his military record. Ah, that's what we're gonna talk about. That's some okay. of the, the yeah, that was some of the, the the well, we'll we'll get to that. Okay. All right, so you know it was very clear that the verifier it wasn't just an easy I'm just gonna you know sign off on this. It was hey I need some additional information before I can, and that there was a you know this part isn't clear if there was some back and forth between the two or there was well what do you see I don't know the report doesn't talk about any communication really going between the two because frankly after this happened the ex 
FBI consultant person, didn't want to interview for the OIG, would not cooperate, wanted nothing to do with this, contract was not renewed, end of story, I'm moving on, I'm not going to, you know. So they never really had the opportunity to talk to that person and find out more about their side of it. Wow. Yeah. Now the other two, no, you know, did they fully cooperate? And particularly the supervisor, who you know still remained at the FBI for a number of years after that, and uh, you know f- fully cooperated and and very contrite and said, "Yeah, I made a mistake, and here are the things that apparently led to that." So let's uh, let's why don't we look at the the timeline a little bit here? Sure. Okay. Okay, so here here is just a quick outline of the timeline. We're not going to be able to get through the whole thing in this episode, but we'll break this up into a couple of episodes. So it, start, it starts with this. On March 19th, the FBI report is issued. Now, there's a, a time when it's actually issued, but there's also a time after the verification happens that they contact the Spanish police essentially over the phone. And it, it's interesting, the report talks about how they are going through essentially a translator and a, an intermediary. Uh, because they, I, I, it doesn't sound like they ever really were speaking to the actual examiners at the SMP. They were dealing with someone who was acting as a translator intermediary, intermediary going back and forth between the two. Well, here's what they said. Well, here's what the FBI is saying, and back and forth and back and forth. And I, you know, that adds a little bit of of, uh, confusion to the story as well, uh, going through the language barrier. Um, at some point, though, the you know th- when they release the report and give the results to the Spanish National Police, after a couple of days, uh, they you know the Spanish National Police say we're not seeing this, we're, we don't get it. So the FBI is sent, starts sending over images, sharing you know showing uh, the features marked up, what's an agreement what points they saw and so on and it goes back and forth that way and we'll we'll come back to that because that that part was something that was wrong that i was teaching uh you know the spanish police on april 13th now this is almost a month later conclude that it's a negative result their, their report says negativo and essentially this is another point of confusion was the fbi didn't know what they meant by negative because this is basically not identified and so there's a there's a, a little bit of confusion of you don't have enough there are you excluding and so on so i mean all the funny things that we've talked about before how <laughs> right. confusing not identified is that was a big point in this that they weren't clear what negativo meant from the spanish police all right so that's april 13th uh, april 21 the fbi goes over to uh, madrid and they sit down with them and show them charts they try to talk to the they meet with the spanish police and try to explain why it is a valid identification uh, on may 4th there's a media leak and this is really important because they had been investigating mayfield up to a certain point but they hadn't intended to arrest him once the media leak happens mayfield is arrested because they feel that if they don't they need to jump on him before he destroys anything and evidence is lost and or he flees or whatever right so the, the, this may 4th media leak is what gets everything going which was right around the time that uh, it starts coming out in the papers um, on May 17th, so just a couple weeks later, um, so Mayfield is arrested on the, four, on the 4th. A couple weeks later, Mayfield hires his own independent expert. That's the, the fourth person involved in this. And basically, that person has 
almost a day and a half or at two days at most to examine everything, get a report, and then testify on May 19th because that's when Mayfield has his first hearing and um, his own expert ends up agreeing with the FBI. We'll, we'll come back and talk more about that. Literally the an hour or two. Day. Yes, just an hour or two after the Spanish police contact the FBI on May 19th after the hearing and they notify the FBI, hey, we've actually identified that latent print to another individual, to Daoud. So, you know, and, and I saw the presentation from Ken Moses, who was the independent expert right. that year at the IAI in St. Louis. And that was one of the things that, I mean, he very soberly joked about and it was very, very endearing when he made the comment, if I just could have waited or delayed by a couple of hours, I would not have, you know, I wouldn't have had to have gone through that it, just by a couple of hours. Now, um, yeah. When we talk about Daoud, I, I've read it differently in different places. Is Daoud his first name or his last name? Oh, uh, good point. I believe it is his last name. His um, last name. I okay. Can, I can look that up between episodes. Okay. And so then uh, now the FBI is trying to figure out how they made a mistake or if they made a mistake, which is not clear at this point. So they travel back to Spain. Um, then they come back. Some other people at the FBI are getting involved, but now the, the the doubt is creeping in. They're not sure if they made a mistake, the ramifications of that. So the FBI at that point declares it was no value. The latent print was no value to begin with. And that's when, right around that time is when the, um, uh, when SwigFast was meeting. So we were getting some of that information right around in that time after, you know, this was all breaking. Now, then. No. Oh, Mayfield yeah. gets released just the the day after. No, nope. uh, uh, no, yeah, he does get released after uh, the nineteenth or so, but his case isn't dismissed quite yet. It doesn't get dismissed till a week later or so. Right. I believe he's released from jail, so he spends two weeks in jail, but then it takes another week before the judge now says he's dismissing the charges when the fbi says it's no value. The judge is like, "All right, this is ridiculous. The only thing you guys had on this guy." was this print and now you're not now you're even saying it's no value charges dismissed so it, it it's not till may 24th that the charges get dismissed but I, yeah, and that's, then that's crazy though that 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 that's the first thing that comes out is the fbi saying okay uh never mind no value so but yeah well i'd look we'll talk about that in another episode right, because right. that is really fascinating it, it can it, it's it's very fascinating we'll we'll come back to that Okay, and so then um, now a couple weeks later, uh, the FBI meets with the Spanish police yet again for the third time in Madrid, and now they're over there, and they have a very different kind of talk with them. And then another <laughs> week le a week goes by, and at this point, the FBI has now come to the opinion that latent print is identifiable, and in fact, it, it is a match to Daoud, and they admit Oh, it was latent fingerprint 17, not 7, my fault, um, that he's the source of 17. Also, this is another fact I was unaware of. They also agree that Daoud is the, is the source of another latent fingerprint on the bag, LFP20. So they have two IDs to Daoud on oh, that bag. Oh, okay. 
And that, to me, that's a very important tipping point that I don't know how much the report actually talks about, but I'm thinking from the psychology of, well, we're not sure if it could be Mayfield or Dawood, we're not sure, and then boom, you match Dawood to latent fingerprint 20 nearby. And you go, ah, okay. So this, I mean, it, you can see how it, there's a certain pendulum that begins to swing here a little bit. So I think this is a good stopping point, and then we'll come back next episode and talk more about the timeline and then some of the other details. All right. And uh, make sure you turn in next week. If um, Tune in next week. Uh, don't forget to, uh, to write in to us. Uh, if you have any comments about any previous episodes or any comments about this episode, especially if you want to you know, uh, say, but Glenn, I've been testifying this way for years because I, saw, I took your class. Um, then Glenn can tell you, well, you should have read the, you know, read it for yourself. But, uh, oh, go apologize. Write, <laughs> go ahead and write into us, uh, Eric at RayForensics.com or Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com. Um, listen to us every week on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or on iTunes. And we'll see you with more uh, Brendan Mayfield and uh, Once Eme, as they call it in Spain, uh, next week and maybe even the week after that. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Music provided on this podcast by Mevio's Music Alley. Check it out at music.mevio.com.